The Federal Lab Consortium is looking to see if there's any interest in a mentorship program for federal technology transfer professionals. It recently wrapped up a survey of FLC members to gauge the viability of such a program. To hear about how the survey went and what a program like this would look like, I spoke to Whitney Hastings, who is chair of the FLC, as well as a senior technology transfer professional with the National Cancer Institute, along with David Kiston, vice chair of the FLC and also manager of technology and economic development at the Sandia National laboratories. So we're always trying to find different ways to increase engagement amongst all of our labs because we've got big labs, small labs, and labs with different missions and priorities, but we can all learn from each other. And so one of the things we did at one of our earlier um, executive board meetings was came up with the BHAGs or the big, hairy, audacious goals. Like, what do we want to do to, like, get our members excited about the FLC? Uh, One of the things that constantly polls highly amongst our members is networking, you know, sharing best practices and learning from others. So a mentorship program was like a natural progression from our traditional training and education, Um, trying to do that one-on-one career development type of pathways. All right. And when you say career development, what is that, you know, is that just kind of advice for the average lab worker or is or tech worker? Or is there another thing that comes into mind when you all you know, first thought of this? Well, for me, it was I was thinking about myself as a mid-level tech transfer professional. Like I wanted to grow and learn about how other labs did things. How can I take my career profession to the next step? So a great way to do that is talking to my peers. I don't know. What do you think, David? Yeah, there's there's one of your peers right there. What do you think? (laughs) There's so much variation across all the federal labs, even within agencies. And there's best practices at at each place. And so I think just to be able to tap into that expertise and, and all of that knowledge is a huge opportunity for us and for all of our members. All right. You put out this survey and you already talked a little bit about this, Whitney, um, and maybe, David, you can follow up on what who are the kinds of folks that you are looking to get involved in this, whether as a mentor or a mentee? So we are hoping that folks across the spectrum of tech transfer will sign up for this. What we found and it was really great was, you know, at all of these organizations, if it's a huge tech transfer office, if it's a group of one or two, there are areas where people are experts and where they need help. So a mentor on one project can be a mentee on another, right? And we're really hoping just to get the benefit from that entire spectrum. So from that survey, what was the interest that you all saw? What were some of the results? And can you just kind of lay out to me how the survey, you know, what kind of questions did you all ask? Yeah, so it was really simple. The The focus is really, what do you need and, and what do you have, right? And some of the areas that we're looking at are agreements. Uh, so we do a lot of work for external external industry partners, uh, writing licenses, cooperative research agreements, and you know everything else that supports this kind of core tech transfer work. Yeah, and I'll add to that that you know some of our agencies are stronger in one area and weaker in another. So for me, I'm at NIH and. We were a little slow to get started on like the open source software, or at least the software aspect, because we do mostly biological materials, pharmaceutical drugs, things like that. Whereas if you look at your partners over at NSA and NASA, they're experts. So why reinvent the wheel when you can glean on your, your colleagues? Like, hey, how did you do that? Like, what are your... 
you know, what makes it easy over there? How can I use your stuff? Yeah, we're all on the same team, right? Uh, (laughs) David, can I pick your brain on some examples of when, you know, you've kind of uh, leaned on partners in the same similar fields on and and worked on projects with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, this is a program, I think, that that can really leverage the strengths that we see across different ecosystems. Also, I work at Sandia National Laboratories. We're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we can increase industry partnerships. And so looking to partner with labs that are maybe outside of the Department of Energy ecosystem, but also just in areas where there's a lot more commercial interaction. So for us, working with folks from NIH and from, you know, other other groups that are really forward facing is, is a huge, huge leg up. Yeah, and more specifically, did and this is a question for both of you. You know, you already sort of gave me an example of how you've worked with people, but did you have like one mentor or one wise old person that you looked to whenever you were kind of stuck in a rut? <laughs> you know, I think there's there's a tendency sometimes in federal government, and hopefully this isn't a shock to anyone, to get siloed and to get you know really stuck in the day to day, and so you know. I, I've been really lucky to have some great mentors, but it takes a lot of time. And, and you know, if you are fortunate to find someone that can help you and guide you through this process, it's great. Tech transfer is relatively new. So I think what we're hoping to do is just cut the time that it takes for people to find those right resources. And Whitney, what about you? You know, one of my favorite things about tech transfer is that the community is so collaborative. They always want to share their best practices with you. So it's almost like, um, it's just amazing how my colleagues like David and all the others have just been willing to, to do webinars, to talk to me one-on-one afterwards. Um, there are too many to count. And, you know, specifically in the tech transfer field, how would a mentor-mentee relationship necessarily work for you all? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, everything from uh, working through how to set up agreements Right. And looking at best practices um, on licensing, you know, it's it's a really technical space and there's a lot of nuance that, you know, we can we can find some commonalities that that affect everybody, regardless of your agency. But within the agencies, there's also a lot of a lot of rules and regulations that affect how we do our jobs. And so we can we can sort of find the shortcuts and help each other just get through, I think, a lot of that steep learning curve. I think it can aid in career progression too, because maybe I'm a expert in creatives and I've done tons of creatives, but I want to move into the the licensing realm, or I want to be a supervisor, or and lead a tech transfer office one day. How do I get the skills necessary to make those next steps? All right, and so can you? What can you tell me about the next steps in this program itself? This was just the very beginning stages. It seems like. Uh, what do you all have in store? And you know, garnering from that interest that you saw, um, how is this all going to work out for you? Well, I think to start with, you know, we've collected some initial survey data, uh, so we need to kind of go through that um, and see what are the needs of our member community um, and how can we structure a program such that. We've got enough mentees and mentors and can coalesce it around the topic areas of interest. So right now we're in data gathering mode, um, starting the pilot program and see if we can make a couple of matches and see how things go. 
Yeah, and you know, on that having too many mentors and not enough mentees factor, is there a lot of? I guess my question is, you know, how youthful is the federal tech transfer uh, industry itself? Uh, do you think that there is a need for some of the newer folks coming in to have these mentorships? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, and again, this is a it's a pretty nascent area, and so a lot of the people that I think Whitney and I have the benefit of of learning from were really here at the beginning, right? So they wrote the first agreements, right? And they, they worked on the first commercial licenses for a lot of these organizations. And so now as we're kind of moving into a next generation, we're seeing folks that are retiring and, and, you know, maybe moving out of the federal space. It's just such a, it's such a big opportunity as we're kind of at this inflection point to make sure that as we're trying to transfer the technology, we're also transferring a lot of the knowledge that goes into how that's done. In general, FLC is a, you know, this is a big resource for companies, for folks in the federal space, and to reach out, right, if there's questions about this or if people want to get more involved. Yeah, that and just um, we're trying to uh, meet our members where they are. You know, in some cases, that's through our online education program. In other cases, it's through our national meeting. Um, and then in some cases, people want that one to one. And that's where we're implementing this mentorship program. Whitney Hastings is chair of the Federal Lab Consortium, and David Kiston is vice chair. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive when you want by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, 
It's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.